You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, today we begin a series called Shift, and uh, we're going to spend the next three weeks in a book called Nehemiah. And uh, this series is about getting back in tune and uh, rediscovering, shifting the way we look at our life and our church and our community. It's about uh, getting our eyes back uh, on what God has called us to do. And uh, we're going to do that with a flyover of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is one of those books in the Bible that practically preaches itself. It can easily be like a 13-week series. We could spend the entire summer on Nehemiah. We're not. We're going to do the entire book in three weeks. So this is three weeks. I don't want you to miss one. I don't ever want you to miss church ever anyways. But you definitely don't want to miss one of these because if you miss one, it'll throw off the whole uh, week for you and your understanding of how it works. So we just finished a summer series on the minor prophets and their major lessons. Uh, they're minor, not because they're insignificant, but because they were smaller and lesser known. Well, what we're going to find is the book of Nehemiah picks up right where the minor prophets left off. In fact, the story of the minor prophets is found... The events that were taking place during the Minor Prophets, during the last parts in the last few weeks, is found in Second Chronicles, Second Kings, and the book of Ezra. And Ezra tells the story about how this once great kingdom of God called Israel split into, uh, they became uh, at war with each other, a civil war they split into. One half eventually was taken off as captives to Assyria. The other half taken off as captives to Babylon. Eventually they were allowed to come back. And Ezra records that story. It records their return back and their building of the temple. Some came back. Check this out. Nearly three million people from Judah were exiled to Babylon. Only 50,000 came back. So Ezra tells the story of, of about 2% of the entire Jewish population that came back and built the temple. Nehemiah picks up the story after Ezra, and it takes place about 15 years after Ezra, and it's 150 years after they were initially destroyed and kicked out of Jerusalem, and the story picks up. They've come back, they've rebuilt the temple, sorta, but the city is still in ruin. The city is still all rubble. The city is still destroyed from the battles that they lost previously. So basically, we're going to read a journal of a leader. Nehemiah is not a prophet. He's uh, not a priest. He's not a teacher. This is a story of a regular guy, just like you and me, who basically heard a call from God to do something, to make a difference. And he did what he felt he could do. And he wrote down that story in his own personal journal called Nehemiah. It's the journal of a leader. In fact, Nehemiah is used as a leadership manual uh, in a lot of discipleship and leadership training. In fact, check out this chart. This is how it works out. This maybe gives you an idea of where Nehemiah sits. Because even though if you open your Bible and you try to find Nehemiah, Nehemiah is kind of like in the middle of the Old Testament. And even though Nehemiah is in the middle of the Old Testament, it's actually the very last event in the entire Old Testament. You you may not realize that. When you read Nehemiah, uh, you think, well, it's happened in the middle. No, Nehemiah is the very last thing that's said about the people of Israel 
in the entire Old Testament. Some people think Malachi was written after. Some people think it was written before. Uh, I agree with this chart right here. Ezra sits right there. It's the very last event of the Old Testament. You can see where Malachi is. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, but Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the last event. So we're going to look at the close, the, the very close of the Old Testament. The very last things that we hear and find about these people and then God is silent with them for about 400 years and then Jesus shows up. So let's look at this. Now, as we read Nehemiah over the next three weeks, I want you to look at it in uh, like in three different ways. First of all, when we talk about Nehemiah, I want you to think about our church. Okay, I want you to think about your connection to the church. I want you to think about how church should be, how church should look, and how church should function. And about the vision that you have for our church and our body here at Living Way. Second, I want you to be thinking about your family. I want you to be thinking about the vision that you have for your family, the vision that you have for your kids, the vision you have for your marriage, the vision you have for your future marriage, the the vision, the hopes, the dreams that you have for the relationships that you're in. And then third, I want you to think about the vision that God has given you specifically as an individual. Because I believe without a shadow of a doubt that if you will get on your knees before God and say, God, your will be done, not my will, lead me, that God will lead you in a very special and unique place in your life and call you to do things that you could only dream of. And some of you, you've already prayed that prayer. You've been on your face before God. You've heard God say, this is what I have for you. And now you're wondering, how can I do this, God? I want you to think about that. So I want you to be thinking about the church and how it how this relates to the church. I want you to think about how this relates to your family. And I want you to think about how this relates to the vision that God has given you for your life, that God has put in your heart. So we're going to fly over Nehemiah. We're going to try to do four chapters today. And uh, there's a lot here. So we're going to go pretty quick. The first section of Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, begins talking about the great compassion and passion that he had for this mission. Let's look at Nehemiah 1.1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, Son of Hakaliah, Hakaliah, in the month of, I love these Old Testament names. You can't ever read them because they don't, we don't even pronounce them in the way that they were pronouncing them. Uh, some of these words, we don't even know how they even might have sounded in their, in their language. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was, and remember, this is a journal. This is the journal of a regular guy, a journal of a guy who said, I see a need and I'm going to do something. The year I was in the citadel of Susa, that's the capital of Persia, he's in the palace. He's a palace guy. He works, he's got a job. He's, I'll tell you ahead of time, he's the butler to the king, all right? says, uh, Hanani, one of my brothers, we don't know if this was just a kinsman or a little brother, he says, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also went about Uh, who went to Jerusalem. Now, remember, only 50,000 out of 3 million Jewish people went back. Nehemiah didn't go back. In fact, he had a nice, posh job in in the palace, in the king's palace, all right? So some of his fellow brothers, some of his brothers, uh, national brothers, other Jewish men came back and he said, hey, man, how's it going in Jerusalem, now that you guys have left, because, you know, I like my job. I like it here in Babylon. I'm going to stay here. Actually, it's now Persia. I'm going to stay here in Susa. Uh, and he says, so how's everything going out there? Well, verse 3, they said to me, 
those who survived the exile, those who made it back and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. He says, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. He says, man, he says, I gotta be honest with you. The city still looks pretty bad. It looks pretty rugged. And not only is it looking bad, but because there's no walls, it's kind of dangerous for them uh, amongst their neighbors who don't look like them being there. He had no idea, guys, listen to this. He had no idea what was going on until he asked. Some of you have no idea of the needs around you, of the needs of this church, of the needs of your family, of the needs of this community, because you don't open your eyes long enough to look out of of your own world, look out of your own bubble. You don't care to ask or read, what can I do? How's it going? Some of you, we say, how's it going to each other? We don't really care how it's going with each other. And if they, we're just praying that when we say, how's it going, that nobody says horrible because then we feel like obligated. We got to say something, right? How's it going? Really bad. Oh man, almost got out of that one. How's it going? What's going on? So we don't ask. Well, Nehemiah asked and he cared. He says, he looked up and he saw, this is what's known as the heart stage. It hit his heart. Verse four says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Here's the first thing I want you to write down is that vision begins with a passionate concern. Vision begins with a passionate concern. Why was his heart broken over walls. I mean, he, he hears the walls are in disarray and that the city is rubble. And he goes, oh God, why? And we're like, why is he crying over walls? Because this is not about walls. This is about the people in the walls. This, he was crying out to God for the people. He knew that as long as these walls were in rubble, that this community, this call, this nation, these chosen ones of God to bring us the Messiah, he knew that as long as the walls were in rubble, that there would be no safety in that community, that this community would be dangerously susceptible to violence and attack. And so he began to cry out, God, help them. God, there's a great need. God, they're hurting. God, their, their, their life is at stake. God, he finally saw, he had a passionate concern. Then there's some people over there dying. Some of you have no idea what's going on under your own roof. Some of you have no idea what's going on in your own family because you can't get off the phone because you can't get off the computer, because you can't get off your own little device, because you can't think out of your own little schedule, your own world. People under your own roof are hurting. People in this, in your own neighborhood are hurting. People in this community are hurting. And once he found out, he cared enough to cry out to God. Now, I want you to hear this. Ezra focuses on the heart of God. That's building the temple. Nehemiah focuses on the community of God. It's the building of the walls. And this is about building community. This whole book is about building community. The walls represented a group of people, a city. And when it comes to vision, you gotta care. You gotta care about how things are. Some of you, go, some of you care less how your marriage is, as long as you guys are just paying the bills and going your own way. Some of you could care less about how your kids are at as long as they stay out of trouble and they graduate from high school without going to jail and not getting pregnant. 
Some of you guys, you care less about what's going on with the people who work around you. You care less about what's going on with your neighbor. You could care less about what's going on in the city, what's going on around the world, as long as you're okay. He found out. This is why things never get done at home. This is why things never get done at a church. This is why there's never, things never get done in this world because there's no passionate concern. God hit him head on with a passionate concern. Verse 5 and 10 through 10, is, he's calling out to God with prayer and repentance. He begins to repent before God for his, for, his, uh, for his sins. He humbly cries out to God. He says, God, forgive me. If you can use me, here I am. This is known as the prayer stage. Let's look at verse 11 as he's praying. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who's this man he's talking about? He's talking about his boss. He's talking about his boss. He, he hears about a need, and he knows that it's going to change his schedule. Guys, listen to this. He hears about a need. His heart is turned passionately towards the issues of hurting people. And he knows he has to do something. God, help me and and give me favor in the eyes of my boss. Give me favor in the eyes of those that are in charge of my schedule. Right? I want you to hear this because some of you, you have the heart stage. It's time to go to the prayer stage. You need God, give me favor as I step out in faith. He goes on to say, he says, he goes, I was a cupbearer for the king. Basically, I'm the butler. I am the head butler for the king. I'm the one who brings him his drinks. I'm the one who brings him his meals. I'm the one who cleans up the table. I am the servant, the butler, the, the, uh, the, uh, the guy who, who serves the king. That, I'm just, just a regular guy. I'm not an engineer, God. I'm not an architect. I'm not a construction worker. I'm a butler, God. But if you can use me to build some walls, sign me up. But God, I need your favor. Count me in. He prayed for the impossible. He It seemed like an impossible situation, but God works best in impossible circumstances. And I'm gonna ask you, what is your impossible prayer for your family? So you're like, man, my marriage is in ruin. And the walls that protect that family are in rubble. And you need, you're in praying, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I can do, but Lord, I'm here. God, I see the issues going on around the world. God, if there's anything I can do, sign me up, God, I'm here. God, I, I, I know a little bit about what's going on with that family across the street from me. Lord, I don't know what I can do, but sign me up. This is where God begins to put on you what's called the vision stage. Chapter 2, he goes on, Nehemiah, while at work, chapter one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King uh, Arzersus, that's a pretty cool name. Uh, by the way, this says months later. He heard about it. He's crying out to God months later. Uh, it's three months of praying and seeking God for an opportunity. When wine was brought to him, he's not trying to get his boss drunk. He's Remember, he's the butler. He's like, he got him drunk, and then he asked him a favor. I see how it works. Great idea, God. No, he's, just, he's a butler, all right? He's a cupbearer. He says, he brought him some wine. I took the wine, and I gave it to the king. And I said, and I had not been, and I had not been sad in his presence before. So he could, it was changing his countenance. It's all he could think about. For three months, he's been praying, 
and he's been crying out to God, and he's had a heavy heart. He's been sad. He doesn't know what to do. He says, God, I don't know what I can do, but Lord, here I am. I'm going to talk to my boss. Lord, I'm, I'm moved. I, I'm, I'm just in this holding pattern. I, I've, I've got the heart. I've got the prayer. I've got the vision. Lord, I need you. Let me tell you something. When you get on your face with God and you see a need, when you see his plan, when you see hurting people, you're never the same again. Man, this is a big part of my life. Nothing is the same when you get the eyes of Jesus. Some of you, that's why your life looks the same every day. You have no passion, no concern, because your eyes aren't open enough to see your family in the eyes of Jesus, to see your kids in the eyes of Jesus, to see your spouse, to see your neighbor, to see this world, to see this city, to see people, to see that coworker. Man, if you just walked in, and could see those people you work with with the eyes of Jesus, those guys that you go to school with, if you can look at them through the eyes of Jesus, it will change you. It changes your mission. It changes your priorities. It changes your direction, which is the next thing that happens. But let's move on. Verse 2, he says, so the king asked me, he says, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then he says, I was very much afraid. Let me tell you something. We've all been there, afraid to talk to our boss, afraid to talk to our husband, afraid to talk to our wife, afraid to talk to our kids about that very serious issue because change is scary. What if they say no? What if they reject us? What if they don't see the same thing that we see? Stepping out in faith is scary. So he was afraid. He says, man, my boss asked me what's up and I'm afraid. I'm afraid. What if he says no? He says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. He says, why should my face not look so sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He says, I've got a whole family of people, my community back home. They're dangerously falling apart and they're in ruin. He shared his heart. How can I not be moved when I see the need? How can I not be moved? Can you see the need? Verse four, it says, the king said to me, what is it that you want? <laughs> I love this. Man, this is, so God gave him favor. What, do you, what can I do for you? And then this is what he says. Then I prayed to God of heaven. <laughs> it's like, this is like an on the spot. God, this is a, a quick, immediate, silent Lord, help me speak prayer. Man, he, he stopped, said a prayer. God, help me. God, lead me. God, give me the words. Open the door. So he says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. He says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He says, I know I'm your butler. And I know I'm not an engineer. I know I'm not a construction worker. I know I'm not like trained in this whole wall architectural stuff. But if it pleases you, can I go back and rebuild the walls? I got to leave. I got to resign. I got to step away. I've got to take a sabbatical. I've got to change what I'm doing every day because there's a need that's so big, it changes me. And I want you to write this down. Is it true vision? When you see the world through God's eyes, your priorities change. And this is big because when you see 
the opportunity that a church or your family or community or that you can have in changing people's lives, all of a sudden your schedule looks a little different. All of a sudden the things you want to do look a little different. All of a sudden the things you care about look a little different. Because when you see the world through God's eyes, things begin to change in priority. Nehemiah had a good job, but when he saw the world through God's eyes, his mission changed. You know, when I was a young person, I uh, had gone through high school to be an artist. I had built up quite a good portfolio and went through high school doing all the art preparation courses and classes and and I was going to go to Texas Art Institute. I wanted to be uh, three things. I wanted to be a school teacher and teach art and teach history. And then I wanted to, I was in a band and I thought, man, I can be a school teacher and play and tour uh, with my band in the summer. Yeah, baby. So I thought I was going to be like this rock star in the summer and cool hip teacher and artist during the rest of the year. And then I was going to do freelance commercial artwork. So I had, I had planned all out until I said, God, whatever you want for me, Lord, here I am. Now, for you, that might mean you're going to be an art teacher. For you, that might be you're going to be a history teacher. For you, that might be you're going to be in a band. Or you might be, uh, you know, whatever God's put in your heart to do. It might, but for some of you, it also might be God has something else for you. And for me, I couldn't stop thinking. I couldn't start, uh, stop uh, dreaming. I couldn't stop uh, uh, imagining. When, once I said, Lord, here's my life, I couldn't get young people out of my mind. And I wasn't much of a young, more than a young person myself. I was uh, 18 years old when I said, God, your will be done. If you want to rearrange my life, have at it. And all of a sudden, all I could could live and breathe and eat was, was the culture of young people. And I began to cry out to God. I began to see his face. I began to, every young person I saw began to look through the eyes of Christ. And, and it, God began to put into me a heart for ministry, a heart for pastoral ministry, a heart for young people. And, and you know what? It changed my calling. It directed me when I saw the world through God's eyes for me. Verse six, he says, And the king and the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long with the queen next to him. How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? We find out later that this was a long, long time. We'll come back to that later. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. God often uses our circumstances and our position to accomplish his will. Think about that. What we find out in the next passage is that not only did he let him go, but he gave him all the power that he needed to collect the supplies that were needed. He gave him a letter of protection and he sent him traveling with an entire cavalry of soldiers. Pretty crazy. God will use your position to accomplish his will. Verse 10, it says, when Samballot and the Horonite, uh, the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite officials heard about this, uh, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This will come up later again. So here's what happens. He shows up. He gets there. He gets to Jerusalem. Nehemiah arrives. Nehemiah 2.11 says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, three days of rest and meeting people, he says, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts. Uh, that's horses with me, except the one I was riding on. 
Um, by night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Uh, that's the, the junk heap that's at the end of the, of the city walls where they threw the garbage. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. This is what's known as the planning stage. Basically, his late night vision, his late night walk, his late night walk through Jerusalem. He saw all 12 gates. This is what it might have looked like for uh, for him. This was, you can kind of see the outline of a broken wall about what used to be the city. Uh, these walls were not built yet. This is actually walls that he'd actually built a little bit as well. Uh, the Temple Mount there was not that strong or that high until after he was done. But this was a little bit of what he might have seen and the rubbles of the wall. Basically, the city was completely uh, left over from, destroyed from battles hundreds of years ago. A city in ruin, unprotected, and this was to be God's beacon on a hill. This was to be the city on a hill to give hope to the world, but it looked horrible. So once you write this down, to move forward, you have to acknowledge the challenges ahead. You have to evaluate the work. He did the research. He estimated the cost. He surveyed the situation. He gathered the facts. He realized the challenge. He was serious. He did not go in willy-nilly and wing it. Uh, Before you lead, you have to learn. Let me tell you something. Some of you, you're looking at your marriage and you know God... This marriage needs rebuilt. And, and what you need to do, wife, what you need to do, husband, is you need to reevaluate and you need to examine exactly how hard it's going to be. Don't just go, all right, we're going to go to counseling after today. We're, we're there. No, you need to think through that it's, this is going to be a, a, an effort. This may take a while. And, you know, a marriage that, that fell apart over 20 years, over five years, doesn't get rebuilt in a day or two. A, a walls are torn down get rebuilt brick by brick, and it may take some time. It may take some work. It may take a challenge. That relationship with your kid that has been lost over the last couple of years, and they're not talking to you, they're not going to all of a sudden look at you as their best friend because you went out to dinner. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. That relationship, that community, this your kids, maybe it will take some counseling. Maybe it will take a new job. Maybe it will take less hours and less pay. Maybe it will mean less money, but a stronger family. Maybe it will take more work and it will take a cost. I want you to realize this, that change will cost you something. And some of you, you want change in your family, but you don't want to pay the cost. You don't want to pay the price of restoring your marriage, of restoring that kid's relationship, of restoring or rebuilding a community. You don't want to invest into the time that's necessary to reach your neighbor. Evaluate the cost. I want to tell you something. If this church is going to be a community that looks like Jesus, it will take work. Us just showing up and plugging in and playing will not build a community that looks like Jesus will take work. After he did the assessment, this is what he said. Then I said to them, verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. You see it, right? You have vision. You have eyes to see what I'm seeing. Jerusalem lies in ruin and its gates have been burned with fire. Come on. He says, let's, re- let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He said, man, they come. Let's us. This is a partnership. It's, it's going to take more than just me to fix our marriage. It's going to take more than just me to build a great church here. It's going to take more than just me to reach this community or to reach your neighborhood. He says, we, only, we can only do this together. He says, and we will no longer be a disgrace. He says, let's build these walls. 
and we won't be a disgrace. You see, this is not about brick and mortar to them. This is about removing shame, about removing fear, about fixing poverty in their land. This is about protecting them from insecurity. This is about changing the lives of the people in that city. And it says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. He says, man, God's fingerprints are all over this. Trust me, this is a God thing. Let's do this. Let's do this. God's favor has been with us over the years. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our church, our vision, uh, some of the things that God's put on our heart. I'm going to tell you today a little bit about our story, about my story. God's favor has been with us. They replied, well, let's start building. I like it. Let's do this. So they began the good work. He gave a clear vision. God-inspired vision. I want you to write this down. When a clear clear God-inspired vision is shared, people respond. When you clearly lay out God's hand and his fingerprints and his mission and the need, if you explain the need and God's plan, clearly people respond. I think this is where a lot of pastors fail. Sometimes maybe I have over the years where I haven't uh, kept the vision clear and in front of us all the time. Some of you, this is why nothing has changed in your family because you've never had that talk with your husband that you need to have. You never had that talk with your wife that you need to have. You've never sat down with your kids and laid out a clear God-given vision for your family, for your future. And for some of you, uh, you've got this idea of what God has in your life. You've never clearly shared that or written that out or shared that with anybody. You haven't shown God's hands on, on the whole thing. You're going to find this. There's always going to be those that don't like it. What happens next is opposition and accusation. Uh, Nehemiah 2.19, it says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, now there's, there was only two last time, there's three, because they rallied more accuser. accusers. It says they mocked and ridiculed us. They made us feel stupid. They tried to make us feel stupid. It says, What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? He says, the, and I want you to know this, there will always be opposition to what God wants to do. I want you to write this down. Every God-given mission will have deflectors. There'll always be someone in your church that say, you can't do that. There'll always be someone in your family that says, what's the point? There'll always be someone in your friendship of circles that will say, well, just leave her or just leave him. Just give up on it. There'll be people in your family that say, well, you know, we just have the black sheep of the family. Got to let them go. Got to let them be crazy. Pray they survive. Some people say, well, it's just, you know, just not worth the effort. You know, the first two guys, Sam Ballant and Tobiah, those are Jewish names. That means they're people from their own community. Some people in your own family might discourage you, and that's when it hurts the most. When someone in your own family says to give up, give in, don't try. When people in our own church will say, what's the point, what's the effort, we should quit. Most Opposition does not come in the heart stage, the prayer stage, the vision stage, or the planning stage, but in the progress stage. Once you start doing something, that's when the people oppose and accuse. Verse 20, chapter 2 says, I asked them, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding, but for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. He says, you know what? We're going to do this with or without you. And though you might be, quote, family, you're going to have no benefit in this. You're not going to enjoy this. You're not going to be a citizen of this community, even though you're family. I want you to know something. He says, take your best shot. God is with us. He's not with you. 
in your face. Now, I got to be honest with you. Uh, our church is about 10 years and we've had some really difficult days. We've had some difficult years. And I can't tell you how many in your face prayers I have prayed. Let me tell you something. Uh, Living Way almost closed down many times over the years. There are times when we, uh, we actually had to pray and I was, God, is this the end? Should we just close doors and, and move on and start over? Should I? Because I want to tell you the voices from people in our own church. I want to tell you some of the voices that I heard. People in our own community telling me that this is not a real church anyways. It never was. People who have told me in our own church that I should quit. People have told me that I need to find another profession, that maybe I should go and leave and do something completely different out of ministry. I've had people tell me to my face, you're not a good preacher, that you're not very good. I've sat, in, I've sat across from a table with a leader on our team who said, I don't learn anything from you. You're not a good preacher. I've heard people say that you just don't explain things very well, uh, that you're not good enough to do this. I've heard people tell me, uh, that that um that your team is weak that the leadership team is is lacking and that they're that you should like get rid of all of them and start over uh, we have had it uh, we've had it in our circumstances as well not only with the voices but man there were times where our finances stunk we had no money whatsoever where I was working a job outside of the church for several years just to make our family ends meet where I tell you, and you know what? I can't tell you how many times I've gone on my face. I said, God, all those people that said I couldn't do it, let me one day say, in your face, sucker. (laughs) That's my prayer, honestly. And I think that's what Nehemiah was praying there. Because Nehemiah says, you know what? God's not with you. He's with me. In your face. You're going to see it. You're going to see this wall we uh, rebuilt. You're going to see it. It's not done yet. But you're going to see it. And you're going to have no part of it. And you're going to wish you had. I got to tell you, man, building a community that looks like Jesus, you can either go the way that everybody else goes and make it look the same, or you can do what God's called you to do. And it might look different. It might look odd. It might even be a little bit harder work, but it will be what God's called us to do. And and I tell you, man, I, I'm still saying you'll see, because I, I, I'm proud of who we are, who we've been. I love our team. I think we're the healthiest we've ever been as a church. Um, there was a time when we, you know, in 2006 in particular, when we just, I mean, we were like this close to saying we're done. Um, but God restarted us. Nehemiah didn't put the work on hold while a crisis response team figured out what to say and how to answer Sanballat and Tobiah. Instead, he just said, in your face, you'll see, God, will you deal with them? This is what happened. The accusation didn't stop. In chapter 4, it comes up again. In verse 1, it says, When Sanballat heard that they were still rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. At first, he was only disturbed. Now he's enraged. He says, He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the armies of Samaria. That means he began to trash talk them and belittle them behind their back. If you've ever been there, I've been there. When the people who, who know you and you find out they're saying, what about me? They're saying, what about us? They're saying, what about my family? They're saying, what about my marriage? They're saying, what? 
See, that's what's happening here. They're talking behind their back and they're saying, oh, will they finish this in a day? They have no idea. This is going to be hard. They are ridiculous for thinking they can do anything here. He says, and they're also saying, um, can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? Burned as they are? He says, man, this is way too hard for them. They'll never be able to do it. It is destroyed beyond repair. They will never be able to fix what has been ruined. They will fail. It's too hard. That's what the others were saying. Tobiah the Ammonite, who is also at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break it down. Nice. He's saying all your best efforts, they stink. You're horrible at what you do. You might get the same ridicule. You might hear people say when it comes to your family, to your church, or to your vision that you have for your life, you'll you'll hear people say, do you really think this is God? You don't know how hard it's going to be. You're so unprepared. You'll never be able to do it. You're going to fail. Sometimes you'll hear from others. Sometimes you'll hear it from the accuser, the devil, and you'll hear it inside your head. You'll hear it in your mind. Nehemiah responded with prayer. He says, verse 4, he says, hear us, our God. He says, we just heard what they're saying. Now hear us, God, I'm praying, for we are despised. Turn your insults back on their heads. Give them over as a plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins for your sight, uh, from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its heights. We got halfway done. Man, we got, I mean, this is a work in progress. The entire book of Nehemiah tells the story. At this point, they're halfway there. We built them halfway up for the people worked with all their heart. This is how fast, man. We are moving forward. He says, but when Sambalat Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, more this time, more accusers. He says, by the way, when you move forward with God, let me hear, let me tell you, you won't have less opposed, you'll have more opposed. Okay? He says, they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps are being closed. I like that phrase, the gaps are being closed. They were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Now they've got physical threats, not just ridicule, but physical threats and stir up trouble against it. The, the word there is and to stir up confusion, which is a great strategy of Satan. So I want you to write this down. Uh, well, you can if you want. Nehemiah had five reasons why they were attacking him. And these are five reasons why people will attack you. We're going to find in the story. I'm just going to hit them real quick. You don't have to write them down if you don't want. But there were personal vendettas. Some of them just personally hated them. Number two, they felt threatened. They didn't like the influence that they were receiving. Some of them were jealous. They were jealous of the king's favor. Some of them will be jealous of you. There were those that accused them of selfish motives. They, they thought they were just trying to build this for their own glory. They didn't see God in it. I want to tell you something. There will be those that will try to say, Yo, you're only trying to do this for yourself. Uh, and then five, there was conflicting agendas because if they were to establish this city, then that meant another city would have to come second to somebody else's plan. And then they oppose change. Some people, they just don't like change. See, when it comes to what God has put on your heart, there's going to be op- opposition. There's going to be accusation. It will happen. Every church, every mission, every family, every community has them. People either bring destruction. People either bring con- um, uh obstruction or people will bring construction. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be the construction person. So here's how they responded. Verse nine, but we prayed to our God. They responded each time with prayer, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night 
to meet this threat. They didn't do nothing. They took action. They set up a security force. They put guards on the walls. How did they respond to ridicule, anger, discouragement, physical threats? Write this down. They prayed, adjusted the plan, persevered, and pursued the mission. They adjusted the plan and method. He took the negative and used it to make them stronger. But the mission stayed the same. I want to tell you something. Along the way in the course of the church's life and in your family's life, the mission is the same, right? A close marriage, a tight-knit family with your kids, good relationships with your friends, right? You know, a church that's looking like Jesus, all these things. But the method in which they get done will change over time. You can't expect to do things the same way and get the same result. That's called crazy, all right? I'm going to tell you something. There will be times in the future of our church where we may just do things different. Like, for instance, this week we start, we split up our junior high and high school for the first time of our church's history. We've never done that. That's a, that's a change that I told Sean. I said, man, this is something I feel like we need to do, and when we do this, we're never going back. You realize that, right? This is a change that will affect our church forever. And there will be things that will change over the course of our church's life and things that you do differently in your family's life. But the mission will never change. Nehemiah 4.10, he says, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Man, everybody's getting tired. Man, the pit crew is tired of being the only four people that show up on Sunday mornings. He says, man, we cannot rebuild the wall. It seems like too much. I'm tired of being the only person that they can call to fill in a kid venture because nobody else wants to do it. Some of you are that person. Oh, wait a minute. No, you're not. You're over there today. Also, our enemy said, before you know it or see it, we will be right among you and uh, the enemy will be there and they will and uh, we'll kill them. We'll kill you and put an end to the work. People, okay, now I, we're exhausted. The enemy saying they're going to kill us. And then the Jews who live near them came and told them 10 times over, Whenever you turn, they are going to attack us. It's like, oh. so you've got your, yourself, you're your insecure inside. You're exhausted. You're tired. You've got threats from people on the outside. And then you've got people on the inside going, man, oh, things are so bad. Negative Nancys are just over and over again talking about how horrible and how hard and how tough it's going to be. When it comes to living vision, there will be challenges from the outside And there will be challenges from the inside. There will be discouragement. And this is what's known as spiritual attack. We know this now. The enemy at times will attack us right when we're weakest. When we're the most tired, when we've come home from a tough day, you might find that your child needs you the most. When you are exhausted and you've spent everything that you have at work, your wife might need you the most. When you feel like you have nothing left in your schedule, well, you need to lay that before the Lord because I believe when you see the world through God's eyes, your priorities, your schedule changes. But there might be a community, a neighbor, city that needs you the most. Let me tell you something. When I had cancer and when I was recovering from cancer, people told me that I should quit the church. Believe it or not. What are the voices that you will hear when you're at your weakest? How will you respond? Nehemiah responded with a cause. Look at this verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore I stand. We got a late movie, so I'm going all day. Therefore I stationed 
some of the people behind the lowest points in the walls of the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. He says, I made a judgment. First they were in watch, now they're ready to fight. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Everybody say, fight for your families. Fight for your families, for your sons and your daughters, for your wives and your homes or your community. He says, we better fight. We fight better when we know what there is to lose. I want you to write this down. It's not in your notes. That the key to perseverance is to know what you're fighting for. Some of you, it's time to stop watching and start fighting. You're just, you're watching your family spiral into rubble. And you're like, oh man, it's so sad. Ugh. No, stop watching and start fighting for your wife. Start fighting for your husband. Start fighting for your parents. Start fighting for your kids. Start fighting for your neighbor. Start fighting for, the, for, for your church. Start fighting for your community. And this is not monopoly. This is not dominoes. There's an enemy who seeks to kill your family. There's an enemy who seeks to take out this city, who seeks to take out this community, who seeks to take out this church. Ephesians 6.12 says it's not a war, it's not a fight that is of flesh and blood with people, but it's a spiritual war. The enemy who is very real, the devil, Satan of old, he is the one who is accusing you and opposing you and attacking you. God says, no, it's time to stop watching. It's time to start fighting. Verse 15, he says, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, took to our work, each to our own work. Back to work. I want you to write this down. This is huge. We are not just to resist the enemy or endure the storm. We are called to build, doggone it. We are called to build. Some of you are like, man, if I can just make it through the day, if I can just get my kids through high school, if I can just survive marriage, if I can just, you know, everybody's working for the weekend, you know, that old lover boy 80 star, man, if I can just make it to Friday, God, give me the paycheck, because I... If I can just make it through the week, God doesn't want you to endure the storm. He didn't create you to hold the fort. He called you to harass the foe. Man, he didn't call us to just resist the army. We're called to build. It's time to build. Man, they were to build a safe heaven, a fortress for those who wanted to seek God, a community that was to care for them and cared for people. Verse 16, he says, for from that day on, half my men did the work while the other were equipped with spears and shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah. They supported them. They were behind them. They were praying for them. They were ready to fight for them who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the soldiers wore his sword on one side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Now, I want you to hear this. I've got an illustration here to help you see this. He says, he says this is what they did. He says, we had one hand on our, on our sword and we had one hand. Whoa. <laughs> come, come, come. How do you use this thing? Uh, he said, we had one hand working and one hand ready to fight. He says, this is how you are to operate. 
This is how life will look now. He says, I want you to be ready to fight. I want you to be ready to work. And I love this picture. I love this picture. He says, as you work, I want you to be ready for whatever the enemy might bring at you. And I want you not only to be ready, I want you to keep your weapon handy and on you and know how to use it. You need to be familiar with your weapon and you need to be ready to work. You need to keep that hammer in your hand, keep driving those nails. Let me tell you something. This is what it might look like for us. This is what it looked like for them. This is what it might look like for us. I've got Summer. Summer, come here, baby. You didn't know I was going to use you. Yeah, she's in service today. This is what it's going to look like for us. Surprise. My kids and my sermons, they love it. Actually, they don't. All right. (laughs) All right. Hey, everybody, this is my daughter, Summer. I think this might be the first time I've ever used Summer in a sermon illustration. Is this the first time I've ever caught you up here? All right. Noelle's had her turns. Uh, so this is, what it, this is what it looked like for them. A sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. All right? This is what it looked like for them. This is what it will look like for us. A sword in one hand and our other hand on the work that God has put for us. This is what it looks like for us. Ready to fight, familiar with the weapons of our warfare, which is God's word and prayer. In one hand on the work that God has called us to do, and that is to care and minister and love our family. And guys, let me tell you something. Some of you, you don't have this or this. You, this is where you are. You're like, well, somebody will take care of my kids. Thank God we have a youth group. I hope somebody in KidVenture leads my kids to Jesus. Right? That's how some of you are. It's like, and some of you are, you know, yeah, I, I love my kids and all that. I don't know anything about God's word or pray or anything, but I think if I just love them, they'll be okay. Well, you'll, they'll, you'll love them, but they might be all mixed up and love you. This is what God says. Have one, you have an enemy that seeks to take out your kids. You have an enemy that seeks to take out your family, your marriage, your friends, and this church. God says, put one hand on the work that you've been given and one hand on the weapon that God has given you, his word, the sword of the spirit. Thank you, baby. I love you. It's time to get back on the wall. Verse 19, it says, Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. <laughs> he didn't sugarcoat it. He says, this is hard work. Let me tell you something. It is hard work being a good dad. And I'm not always a good dad, so that's why I know it's hard work. It's hard work being a good husband, being a good wife. It's hard work being a good friend. It takes hard work to be a daughter, a son and a daughter that looks like Jesus to your parents. He says, the work is extensive and spread out. That means there's a lot to do. He says, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. I think of our church, how, how in two ways, we're like we got a whole crew of people in KidVenture today. We're spread out. We're over here. Some of you guys have no idea the ministry that goes on over there, and they have no idea sometimes what goes on over here. They might read the notes or hear the message, but they'll never see my daughter up here because we're spread out. Some of you, it's like we meet here, we high-five each other, we shake hands, we hug next, we say, yeah, we want to be a community for Jesus. And then we all spread out. We move to our homes, we move to our neighborhoods, we're all over town. He says, wherever you, uh, he says, uh, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us here. Our God will fight for us. I love this. He says, you know what we do every Sunday? We blow the trumpet. 
He says, when you hear that trumpet blow, gather together and be ready because God is with us. All right? I want to tell you something. Sunday is important. It's the trumpet blow. We blow the trumpet. We want you to come. And when you come, we call you here to worship, to pray, encourage, seek God, and then we're released to build our homes, our work, places in our school. 21 and 23, Nehemiah says that they were always ready, always prepared, always mindful. And here's the last part. And I want to end with going back to chapter three. And we're going to close with this thought. And that is what's called mobilization. And I love chapter three. We won't even read but two verses in the whole thing. You can read it on yourself. It's just a bunch of lists of names and people and jobs. And I'll tell you why I love it. This is what it starts off with. The first verse simply says, Elashib, the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated as far as the tower of Hanel. You're like, what's that mean? Well, what begins in chapter three is a whole list of names, places, locations, and the people. What follows is some of the most diverse group of people ever listed in the Bible, different nationalities, different backgrounds, different jobs, all walks of life, working together to build a community. This is the last thought I want you to write down, is this building God's community takes all of us doing our part. It takes all of us doing our part. People out of their comfort zone, seeing a need and doing it. Let me tell you what chapter, here's a rundown of chapter three. Chapter three says that there are priests driving nails, farmers lifting walls, shepherds lifting beams, goldsmiths repairing walls, perfume makers laying bricks, shop owners and merchants carrying lumber, blacksmiths putting on doors, musicians swinging hammers, people of authority getting dirty, politicians pitching a hand, the rich and the not so rich working side by side, people repairing their own streets, people walking across and repairing the houses across from them, Nehemiah himself in the gravel pits repairing the walls, long way from a butler, Nehemiah was. 40 people groups, different backgrounds, all of them doing it to honor God and to be a part of a community that was a light to the world. Let me tell you something. This is what the body of Christ should be like right there. Imagine all of us, different backgrounds, different unique abilities, But you see, it wasn't the perfume maker making perfume. It was the perfume maker hammering nails. Guys, you might be surprised what you can do when you just see a need and you feel it. We heard from Shauna. Man, we have a need in in pit group. We always have needs in Kidventure. In the next couple months, we're going to show you what it means to be a part of a family that's here to build a community that's going to give life to the city around us. And you know what? You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be willing. I love this picture in chapter 3. If we're to build a community, a safe harbor in a stormy world, it's going to take all of us together. Ephesians 4, 15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. For in Him the whole body, that's the whole church, the whole community, is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That's how we're going to build a community of hope to this city. That's how our church is going to grow. That's how your family's going to grow. 
when we get out of our comfort zone and we pick up a hammer and we pick up the sword of the Spirit and we see the kind of place that God has for us. So Nehemiah is about restoring lives. It's about building a place of safety. In Matthew 5.14, Jesus says that you are a light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are that community. I want to tell you something. They were building a real life place community. What we are to build today is a community that is the church. We're going to talk about this whole idea of church next week. I want to end with one passage. Ephesians 2 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers. You're, you're not a nobody. You're a somebody. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're in His community when you give your life to Him. And members of His household, part of His family, built on the foundation of the apostles and the apostles, apostles with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. We are the walls of the temple. We are the gates of the, of the city built up and risen by Christ himself. He says, verse 22, and in him you are to build, you are being built together to become a dwelling place to which God lives by his spirit. Let's be that city. Let's be that community. I'm gonna pray for you today. I'm gonna pray that your family takes a turn, a shift from watching to building, that you have those tough talks, that you sit down with your family, you start making those changes that need to take place. I encourage you to do that with this church as well as we move forward and shift what we think community looks like. God, thank you so much that you are with us today. Lord, I pray that you would uh, move in our heart, Lord. I pray that there's someone here that feels like they're a foreigner or a stranger. Lord, let them know that they are welcome here, that this is a, a church that, that where they can be family, where they can be a part of the family of God. Lord, let this be a place where we show that we care and a place where we are caring. God, we love you. I thank you, Lord, that you gave us the example first through Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.